Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Milet Geifman, an associate professor of the history of art and classics. Her research focuses primarily on Greek religious art. She's interested in topics such as the divine image in Greek religion, the relationship between artifacts and ritual, the variety of forms in Greek art, from the naturalistic to the non-figural, and the historiography of the scholarship of Greek art. Today we talk with her about her new book, Anikonism in Greek Antiquity, which was recently awarded the Gaddis Smith International Book Prize by the Macmillan Center. The prize is awarded annually for the best first book by a member of the Yale faculty. Welcome, Professor Geifman. Thank you. And Thanks congratulations on the award. Thanks very much. Let's start with the term anikonism since some of us may not be familiar <laughs> with what it means. Right. Um, so first, the word aniconism, we have the word icon mm -hmm. in there. And by icon, we know what icons are. There's things we can recognize. And when we say iconic in the context of Greek art and Greek religion, mm -hmm. we typically mean figural, things that are like in human form. Mm -hmm. And with aniconism, we actually think about things that are not in human form. And here in particular, in relation of representing gods. Okay. So we're used to seeing Aphrodite in human form, right. goddess of love, really sexy. But then I was looking at, ca at cases where she was not represented in human form. And there are such cases, and that was what drew me ah. to the subject. So aniconism is all that stuff that's really weird. You expect to find gods looking like you and me, mm -hmm. or probably better than you and me, mm -hmm. but then represented in other ways, okay. like stones or, or blocks of, of uh, or planks, or just empty spaces where they tell her, here is Zeus, but you can't see the father of the gods. So all these very odd things that okay. people don't usually talk about. Okay, well, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of yeah. some specifics <laughs> in a minute. Why don't we start with an overview of your book? Tell okay. us about it. So the book basically, first of all, explains the term, mm -hmm. tells us where it's coming from, or where this concept is actually originating from. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of historiography looking at to why and where this idea actually emerges, and that's from the 19th century. And then it looks at different ways in which we can understand the term, because it's a very fluid and very in interesting term. Mm -hmm. So that's the introduction. Then it looks at the evidence. What, how can we actually find? How do you know that a rock was not just a rock, but that people thought it was Aphrodite, right. or uh, Zeus, or Apollo. So how do we know this stuff? So these okay. are the questions I was asking, and then looking into the evidence. And some of it is texts, ancient texts, like the Greek travel writer Pausanias, who was traveling all over Greece, and he tells us a lot about that. He was living in the Roman era, but he had seen, he's like an old archeologist in many okay. ways, so he gives us stories. We read about other stories. So the first part of the book is about 
about text from ancient Greece. The second one is our, my own work and looking at to, into sites in different places in Greece where I could identify, aha, uh -huh, there's evidence, there it is, I could see that. And I also looked at Greek vases with representations of objects that are aniconic, mm -hmm. like a pillar of Aphrodite or a pillar of Heracles. So all you have is a pillar with an inscription, but nothing else. Right. Um, and then they all brought back together in the conclusion. So it's okay. a very, it's an overview of the question, but then a lot of evidence and then, and then take it together. Okay. So let's talk about your research and how you went about um, gathering it oh. all up. So I imagine you spent a good deal of time in Greece. Yes, I don't complain about that. <laughs> it was always locations close to the beach, so okay. I was happy. Uh, no, but it was really, it was first sitting in the library, actually. Right. And then I had to identify these very different places, whether it was in the heartland of Greece, in Arcadia, was in Santorini, where I was looking at rock inscriptions. Mm -hmm. It was in a small island off roads where there was an empty seat, so it's a different kind of aniconism, mm -hmm. where you have an empty seat of Zeus and Hecate, which is the goddess of magic. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really traveling in very different places. I was also looking at Greek vases, and those take you to different museums. Right. Uh, I also went to Italy. So it was a lot of travel. I'm not mm -hmm. complaining, yes. but it was very exciting. Sounds very nice. Yeah. So I am curious, why the difference between the human figure mm -hmm. and then the representation through the pillar or the rock, right. for example? What, Why is there a difference between the two? Well, the Why is it represented in, in two right, different right. ways? Right, right. So one of the thoughts, one of the theories when I started working on this was for people didn't know how to do this. They didn't, they, they didn't know how to draw gods so, or represent them. So they just had pillars and poles. And, and over time, the ancient Greeks learned how to do that. Mm -hmm. But actually, when I looked at the evidence, I saw that both modes coexist. So you have... In certain times of life, you would have the representational, the one you can recognize, the one that everybody could see, aha, uh -huh, here is Dionysus. But in other areas of life, in other, other uh, contexts, you'll have the non-representational. And these things coexisted side by side. And that depends on the context, on the needs of the cult. Because the, uh, unlike in Christianity or Judaism, here we have a lot of very, it's a wonderful world to explore. You have many, many variations. And the same God could be shown in many different ways. Okay. And they coexisted side by side. Would there be typically one way it would be shown in life versus another way? Given, can you give us mm, a specific? Yeah, example you of would something? have, for instance, Zeus, big statue in Olympia, the biggest thing ever. Mm -hmm. People were just. But then you will have also an empty seat of Zeus, or just an altar of Zeus, or a rock inscription of Zeus, and that would be in different places. So in a more public cult, in a pu public worship, you will want to have the one that everybody can recognize, mm -hmm. something that's more private or more isolated or more complicated, I would say, 
um, there you would have the non-representational, the aniconic. Okay. And it's true that the one we all know and recognize is the anthropomorphic. That's the one we are right. used to. But then there are these other modes, and that makes the anthropomorphic even more interesting. This is not just because they had to do it that way. They chose to do it that way. Right, right. Yeah, so it makes things even more interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. So how do you, how do you know by looking <laughs> at something what it is supposed to represent? Well, is, that's... Is it's written or described yeah, somewhere? It's, it, there's a, I mean, one way you have to do is look at inscriptions. Okay. Um, and I was spending, I spent two weeks in Santorini in this site called the Agora of the Gods, the sort of the marketplace of the gods. And all you had there are rock inscriptions. And there are all sorts of names just of gods. But you also have, also have remains there, archaeological remains, that suggest that people were worshipping there. But all that we have are just rocks. Hmm. and inscriptions and it's very odd but it's an isolated area and there it seems that the reason for that was connected to the people the guys that were hanging out there and they were um, young men on the verge of becoming part of society mm -hmm. so in these kind of transitional phases of life they were engaged in that kind of right, worship right. Okay. so it's very interesting did you encounter any surprises when you were writing the book Things well traveling expecting? well finding the the seat of Zeus was uh, quite a, an ordeal because and where is the seat of Zeus so it's a, a small island that no one has heard of only ecotourists that really want to get away from everything mm -hmm. will get to this small island off-road. It's called Khalki. And I thought, okay, I'll just go and I'll find it because there was an old publication from 1892. So I was, all right. And I went there and it's, an, it's such a small island, you couldn't even come with a car to the island. They mm -hmm. don't even have street names on that island. It's just, you know, it's like a village, an island that is a village, mm -hmm. but gorgeous. I mean, the I best, bet. oh my God. <laughs> Beaches that you have to have the fishermen take you there on a boat. So it's really, and I thought, okay, no problem. I'll just get there. I'll do one day of a hike. It says it's just a couple, you know, a couple meters, you know, 100 meters from the port. And I get there and I realize there's no way in hell I could do this by myself. Uh -huh. But I was really lucky and I met uh, two people there uh, who helped me along the way and we found, we, they actually had the car because they lived there. Mm -hmm. So we drove to the site, which was the ancient Acropolis of uh, the island, um, which is mostly abandoned actually. And we drove there and we started climbing and we're climbing and I have the old photo from the old publication mm -hmm. looking for the, and I couldn't find it and I couldn't find it. But thanks to my friends, we actually eventually we found the seed of Zeus mm -hmm. and that was hidden from you. So, because uh, ah. one of my friends was looking for something even more isolated than that. So, and there we found it. So that was a great, I mean, I had no idea it would be that difficult mm -hmm, to find. Mm -hmm. And so it was also a nice surprise to be able to find that. Yeah, yeah sounds like a wonderful adventure yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that. So how does the work that you've done on this book differ from some of the other research that's out there? Um, well, there wasn't much research out there. That's ah, the truth. So you're so, a trailblazer. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there was a book from 1903 mm -hmm. that really was dedicated to the question how, of gods that are not in non-figural form. Mm -hmm. There's also a book that looked uh, from 18, in 1988 that looked at something called Xoana, which are supposedly the primitive ancient predecessors to Greek sculpture. But the kind of work I've done, which is both looking at this particular phenomenon 
and looking at the archaeological record at Greek re representations of anaconic materials like the one you see on vases. That hasn't been really undertaken since 1903. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously... And why do you think that is? Seems like a great gig if you can get it. Uh, I thought so when I <laughs> when I really realized that I was like, whoa! But because it's hard, ah, it's okay. hard, and it's really against everybody's expectation. You will work, walk into the Yale Art Gallery. You see amazing images of Greek gods, mm -hmm. and they're so attractive and they're so compelling. And so the thought that the Greeks that had this amazing art figural art, the, the, the tradition that gave us naturalism in art, mm -hmm. that they would have these weird things, that just doesn't make sense. I see. So, so I think that's why people didn't even think about looking in that okay, direction okay. so much. So are people, um, do you have people who are naysayers who say, no, this is not <laughs> correct? Well, there were, it's going to be interesting how people react uh -huh. to the book. I think actually so far it's been very well received. Mm -hmm. I think the idea is that, because I'm not arguing that this is a central phenomenon. I'm saying this is there, but it's basically in, on the margins, and that's mm -hmm. what makes Greek art even more exciting. You understand to greater extent that there's a way, a variety of, of ways in which the Greeks represented the gods, and that's really my contribution to thinking about Greek art. Mm -hmm. um, so there may be some naysayers. I'll be very curious mm -hmm. to see. I, mean, I haven't, I had, so far I've had very, very positive reactions okay, to the book. Good, good. And what about conclusions? What are some of the conclusions? So some of the conclusions are really this idea of what I call the spectrum of iconicity. So you have different ways. It's not just iconic, uniconic, but a range of ways of suggesting a god is present. There's mm -hmm. something divine here. Um, and that actually this idea that aniconic came before iconic is a, is a way of writing a history. So mm -hmm. you think, you, when you start thinking about your own history, we say, ah, we start from the simple and we develop. But actually, in reality, the two were side by side. So doing this very big survey and looking into all the evidence really gave me an idea between, showed me how history, the way we write it, and then the reality are sort of two different things, mm -hmm. and uh, we have to think about that. So. Now, it just crossed my mind, was there one specific instance where you came across a symbol <laughs> that said, hey, I think I'm onto something? Um, you know, what gave you the idea, basically, to, to explore this, this? So this whole project, actually, it started off when I was in grad school oh. in a seminar that I really didn't want to take. Because Funny how things work out that way. I know. I really didn't want to take that class. And that class was about Cyprus. And I wanted to study about Greece. But my, um, my professor at the time was digging in Cyprus. So, and he was interested in Cyprus. And I had no choice but to go and take the class because it was a very old-fashioned mm -hmm. program. Um, so and when my students complain, I, I just I have to refer them to that story. So I really didn't want to take the class, but I had to. But then I realized that in Cyprus there was a lot of that kind of stuff, and I got really intrigued. There was one site where there was one stone, and it was surrounded by lots and lots of figurines, and it seems like everybody was worshipping that stone. It's mm -hmm. a site on the northern part of Cyprus. Um, it's called Aya Irini. It's where now is the Turkish side of 
uh, Cyprus. So I was really intrigued. Why would you have a stone where they knew how to represent gods, they knew how to make images, but the divine was somehow represented by a round rock mm -hmm. where all the worshipers were represented by terracotta figurines. And then I started reading and I was like, of course, there is such a phenomenon. And I had no idea. Nobody told me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it started there. Everybody thought I was crazy. Uh -huh. And maybe I am a little I bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought it's impossible and there's not that much. In the end of the day, I had too much. And I'm sure there's more evidence that I couldn't mm -hmm. cover in the book. Right. So uh, it was very exciting. Very interesting. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you. That's great. For more information about Professor Geifman and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.